Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 30. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Anger. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lust. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, we're continuing on um, the Sermon on the Mount and um, getting into uh, some of the uh, more practical applications of um, the words of Jesus. So um, this week, Tom was in the office uh, working and um, occasionally I have these moments of like trying to figure out um, like how old I am. And I was like, hey, Tom, do you remember when? And he was like, not really. And I was like, ah, that's what I was afraid of. So, but um, everyone remembers, like everyone knows who Bill Clinton is, right? You're not that young. Like everyone knows who Bill Clinton was, right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, like president of the United States. But what I asked Tom was, and I know he was probably more known here for his involvement with the peace process and things like that, but um, if you remember, there was uh, a scandal with Bill Clinton, um, with Monica Lewinsky. Um, he had an affair with her in the office and things like that, right? So um, here's one of the most powerful men in the world, um, and he has this affair with an intern um, in that. And during kind of that scandal, um, President Clinton said this. He said, even presidents have private lives. As if to kind of say, hey, I know I'm the president, I know I'm this uh, worldwide known public figure, but even presidents have private lives. And so what happens in my private life shouldn't really have anything to bear on my public life. Um, and that didn't really go too well with him. Um, he ended up getting impeached and, and things like that. But um, 
It's this idea that there's an area of my life where I'll do the right thing, I'll act in the right way, but there's also an area of my life that's off limits where I set the rules. Um, and again, the, the, the public outcry on that was, um, was, no, that's not how this kind of works. And yet, if we're really honest, I think we're all kind of like Bill Clinton in that way. We have certain areas in where we're alive where we'll admit, hey, yeah, this is the way things should go. But we have our interior kind of life where we'd just rather not people go poking around, where we'd rather kind of that be off limits. And as we said last week, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is concerned that no one thinks that way when it comes to their place in the kingdom of God. He's like, that's not how those that are followers of Jesus, those who name the name of Jesus, those that are a part of the people of God are to be. That's how the hypocrites act. That's how um, other people act. That's not how the people of God should act. The people of God, there isn't to be an outward self that keeps the rules and plays by the book, and this inner self that's kind of our business. And so as we saw in the Beatitudes, when, we first, uh, when, this, when this scene first opened up and Jesus starting his sermon, Jesus is concerned that we understand the priority of our internal disposition over external purity. Because if our internal purity is right, then our external purity will come in line. He's concerned about us being people of integrity. That is, that our inside and our outside, our our interior hidden world that only you have access to, you and the Lord have access to, is actually the same as what other people see, that we are um, people of integrity. And what happens when we are um, not following the way of Jesus is we become disintegrated. We, we, we come apart. We're not whole. Our inside and our outside become separate from each other. We are disintegrated people. And Jesus wants and is calling us to be integrated, in people of integrity. He's calling us to be people of shalom or wholeness. Um, and so the more integrated we are, the more like Jesus we are. And this is um, where Jesus, where we started. We started where we ended last week. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts to unpack it, which they would have been waited in bating breath because the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were the righteous people of their time. And you're telling us we have to be better? My righteousness has to be exceed the like black belts of righteousness, the ninjas of righteousness. No, if if they're not getting in, then none of us have a shot. And in some ways, this is the point. And so Jesus is gonna give six applications of verse 20, essentially. What does he mean by this idea that our righteousness has to exceed that of the, the scribes and Pharisees? And so these applications, they're not to be taken as the teaching per se, leading to kind of an over-literal reading, right? Because we're talking about plucking out our eye and cutting off our hand. And so um, we need to be careful how we're reading these things. We're reading them in the right light. But the point that Jesus is, is trying to make here is that to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of God, to be counted as authentically um, belonging to Christ... We must have a deep and a high righteousness, a perfect righteousness, one that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And so um, as we go through the next uh, few weeks here, we're going to look at these six examples. We're going to look at the first two today. Um, And they kind of follow a similar structure. Um, Jesus gives us these kind of auditory anchors, these memory hooks. And so each section kind of starts off with this phrase that he uses, you have heard that it was said of those of old or to those of old. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, this is important that we know what what he's doing and what he's not doing here. Each of these is going to have kind of three parts to it. One, the Torah statement, what the law said. You've heard it said, or you have heard that it was said. So that's important. He doesn't say you have heard that that it is said or that it is written, but you have heard that it is said or, or that it was written. But I say, so there's this Torah statement, then Jesus's explanation And then he's going to apply it to us. And so this is kind of the pattern that we're going to come to. And these six examples that we're going to look at have been confused at times. Um, Some people would actually call these the antithesis. But that's not what's happening. This is really important to us. I want us to really understand that what Jesus is saying here isn't the antithesis of the law of the Old Testament. He's not, what he's not saying is, listen, you have heard that this is true. That's not true, but this is true. That's not what he's saying. So when he says, you have heard it said, but I say, he's not giving the opposite. He's not um, as if he's offering a new teaching that is somehow opposed to the Jewish belief and understanding of the law. That's not what he's doing, right? And the preceding verses right before this, he was very clear. He says, I've not come to abolish the law. In, in fact, those who relax any of these laws are not going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So he says, I didn't come to abolish them. I've actually come to fulfill them. And so he's showing us what kind of attitude and what by, uh, a couple things. One, what kind of attitude and behavior is required. And then two, how, this demands, how these demands uh, surpass or supersede those of the law, the Torah, without contradicting it. Does that make sense? So he's going to say, this is the law. I'm going to give you the new law of Christ, as we talked about, that's going to surpass that or supersede that, but it's not in contradictory to this. So one way that um, an ancient kind of saying is, Christ's commands contain the law, but the law does not contain Christ's commands. Okay, so that's a helpful way to think about that. The new law of Christ contains the law, but the law doesn't contain Christ's commands. And so he's bringing us through the law by fulfilling it and then pulling out the deeper um, meaning that has always been there, but that they had misinterpreted or um, turned into technicalities that they could technically obey and and thus feel kind of self-righteous about themselves while making everybody else feel bad. That's what the scribes and Pharisees essentially did. Look, we're able to keep all of these laws. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. You're keeping these technical kind of laws, but you're not actually keeping the law. And so whoever fulfills the law of Christ fulfills the law. It's not the antithesis, but the actual exegesis of. He's explaining the law. Um, Jesus is revealing what has always been there and correcting their misinterpretations of the law not correcting the law itself. So that's really important because there's this idea today that the, the Old Testament isn't congruent with the New Testament, and there's this Old Testament God who's kind of grumpy and angry, and he has all these laws, and 
Um, and then Jesus comes, and he kind of replaces this old God, and he's nice and kind, and, and he's all about love. And, and, but that's, that's this characterization, a mischaracterization. Jesus is like, I'm not abandoning any of this. I'm actually trying to help you understand what it really actually means. And so some things that will help us, um, just a little bit of review. I know I was at South last week, and so I'm not sure exactly how Andrew covered all of this, but um, just to help us uh, with clarity, like, well, what kind of laws do I have to obey then? Does this mean that I can't eat lobster and I can't wear blended wool with polyester or not that you wear polyester anymore, but, you know, whatever it is. So, um, but when Jesus says he fulfills the law, there's some laws that he has fulfilled that, that then are, in a sense, not applicable to us anymore. And so um, you have the civic law. These are laws that God gave um, to the nation of Israel that were applicable to them as a nation. So Jesus comes and uh, says, no, the kingdom of God is not only for the Jews, but it now is for the Gentiles. Um, and so we don't have to travel back to Jerusalem um, for certain holy days or, or things like this because we are now part of the people of God, not just the Jews, but open to everyone. There's also ceremonial law um, that was given to them. And Christ fulfills this as well. And so we don't sacrifice animals anymore. There's no um, these purity laws and, and food laws, things like that. Um, Jesus comes and he does away with, not, not again to abolish them in a sense that they didn't mean anything or that they were useless, but his sacrifice now is a full and complete sacrifice. We no longer have to keep sacrificing animals. Um, the purity laws, he says it's not, in Mark, it's not what goes into you that makes a person unclean, certain animals, bacon, praise Jesus. Um, I had candied bacon on my pizza last night at Pizza Punks. I highly recommend it. And... Um, so Jesus says, yeah, eat all the candied bacon you, well, that your heart will allow you to eat um, before it gives up. And I mean heart in the actual pump thing that, that can get clogged up. So, um, right? So the civic law, these ceremonial laws, um, Jesus fulfills. Um, but it's still important for us to ask, well, what are these about? And as we see Jesus himself say, listen, all of these laws, the prophets, all of these are pointing to me. And so the point of being clean and pure is still important for us today. We're still to be distinct people. We're still to be clean. It's just, it's not the food that makes you clean. It's what's in your heart. It's who we are in the inner person. And this is what Jesus is driving at today. Holiness still matters. Being distinct as the people of God still matter. It's how we actually do that. And then we have kind of a third category uh, of God's moral law. And these are laws that apply to all time and all people. Um, and so this is what we're going to get into some of today. Um, murder, um, killing unlawfully, these kind of ways. Um, these are always going to apply to us. Our sexual ethic um, is, is something that still applies. It's part of God's kind of universal moral law. And this was always what the Old Testament um, was driving toward. God always wanted... Um, a whole people, a generous people, a distinct people, and a people of integrity, a people of shalom or wholeness. And unless we think that the law never required that, um, we go back and we read through the prophets, right? God was always more concerned about their heart. He gave them these laws to reveal to them what they were to be like as examples. Um, but Micah 6 um, 
the, the prophet Micah is very clear. What does he say? He, this heading is, what does the Lord require? Right? Well, so according to the law, the Lord required all kinds of things at this time. But he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with him before burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's pretty, that's someone who sounds like they're taking the Lord serious. You want to sacrifice? I'll give you 10,000 of them. Rivers of oil. I'll give you my, first, my firstborn, my own body. But he says the answer. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to do what is right, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Amos, um, in chapter 5, 21 to 24, similar, he says, this is the Lord. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? These are the things that you've told us you've required of us. You've told us to do burnt offerings. You've told us to give uh, to sacrifice the fatted animals. What do you mean you're not going to look upon them? God continues, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. You're like, I thought you wanted us to come and sing and worship you. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There is no disunity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. It's the same God, our triune God. And he's always been after righteousness. He's always been after a people who not just do the right things technically, but a people who actually are. You can do the technical kind of law-keeping with a heart of stone. But Jesus, the prophet said, no, I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you because you can't actually keep the law if you rightly understand it as Jesus is still going to keep pressing into us and show us today. But with my spirit empowering you to give you new desires, we can actually walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And yes, we don't do that perfectly, um, but we are able to do that in a way um, through God's grace in a way that's pleasing to him. And so, Let's look at this first example that he unpacks for us in anger. Let's not unpack it in anger. Let's unpack it in anger. So he says, you have heard that it is said, this is the Torah statement, verse 21, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So murder, um, killing someone unlawfully, is judgment. You're going to be judged for that. Jesus is then goes on in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, these aren't like three little examples that he's pursing out to where, okay, this type of anger, you go to this court, this type of anger to the council, then the really bad stuff. This is basically all talking about the same thing. 
And it all leads to our judgment, our being excluded from the kingdom of heaven, right? This is what he says. We're talking about how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, he says, you've heard it said that you think just not technically murdering someone is enough. But he says it's not enough. Those that are angry or insult, he's talking about our contemptuous attitude toward people, right? We get angry. We harbor bitterness towards people. And he says it's the same. Those are the the same seeds that eventually lead to um, murder, these violent seeds that we have. Now, there's a, a type of anger that is righteous, right? So we're told in the scripture, like actually um, in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry about things, but do that in a way that, that isn't sinful. He says, do not let sun go down on your anger. Deal with our anger today and give no opportunity to the devil. Listen to how he goes on. Let the thief no longer steal. We're like, okay, yeah, stealing, but what's that have to do being angry? But rather let him labor, uh, labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And actually, our speech isn't to murder someone. It's the opposite. It's to build them up. It's to give them life. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit when we do that. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Anger, corrupting talk that tears people down. Bitterness, wrath, slander. We clamor against people and we have an attitude and a heart of malice towards other people. And Jesus says, this is really what is revealing of our heart. And we're like, man, that seems a little bit um, extreme <laughs> to equate that with murder. But it's God who looks down into our heart. And look at the application that he gives in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, for us it'd be like, hey, if you're here at church, and you remember that your brother has something against you? Now, that's interesting. It's not that you have something against your brother. It's that your brother has something against you. That I might have offended someone else. That I might be a cause for someone else even to be angry with me. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Like, get up in the middle of church and leave. I'm, I'm more interested... And this is exactly what those old Amos said, right? He says, I'm not interested in, in your worship. I'm not interested in you going through the motions of being God's people when you're not actually being the people of God in your heart. And so drop the worship service, leave, and actually go and be reconciled to your brother. And he gives another example. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say you'll never get out until the last penny has been paid. What is he driving at here? It's the urgency, it's the priority of reconciliation. And it's be reconciled before judgment. 
There's going to be a time where time's up. Where we, don't, we don't have time anymore. We're going to stand before a judge, and judgment will come. And he says, be reconciled. Take care of these things before that. There's an urgency. There's a priority for us to deal with who we actually are, those parts of us that aren't like Christ at all. And for a lot of us, I think we underestimate, don't we? We think, oh, that guy, he's just kind of hot, hot-headed. Oh, that's a, you know, an Irish temper or whatever. You know, we kind of write these things off as if, well, that's my nationality and heritage to be an angry, bitter person. Uh, I, I'm just hardwired for that, so that's the excuse. And that might actually be true, but we are. We are all hardwired for sin at some level. But that, 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 what does that have to do with anything? It just is evidence of our fallen nature. And so Jesus is trying to lead us from death to life. Remember we talked about this idea of being blessed. The word there is, is flourishing, right? It's flourishing or happy. Happy. The, the life will go well for the person who, and he lists all of these things. And one of them is a peacemaker, right? It, it is the person that's trying to reconcile. Proverbs 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. But this is something we know, right? Medical doctors, like, we know this. Anger, bitterness, when we have relational strife, does that not actually manifest itself in our physical health as well? Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up more anger. We live in such a culture of outrage at the minute, don't we? And like social media, our connectivity um, can be, that can be a really great thing and, and tools that can be used for good, but man, more often than not, it just seems like they're, they're tools of the devil, <laughs> like literally. The Twitter's just like this place of just outrage all the time. People like, I'm like, I think you're trying your best to misunderstand people. I'm like, you're going out of your way to try to misunderstand people. And, and I'm not talking about our politicians. I'll get to them in a second. I'm talking about like Christians, like people who name the name of Jesus, trying their hardest not to understand other Christians. I just want to be mad and angry because you're not like me. And you sin differently than I sin. And so I'm going to be mad and outraged about it. Instead of having a soft answer, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he was slow to anger, quiets contention. Proverbs 19, good sense makes one slow to anger. So if someone's hot-headed and temper, they're not a person of good sense. That's a kind way of saying that person, you know, is an ignorant person. And so what's the advice of Proverbs 22, 24? Make no friendship with a man given to anger nor go with a wrathful man. man. If you have people in your life that are constantly angry, those people of kind of rage, the Bible says you might need to rethink that friendship. We know those kind of people, don't you? The angry, bitter, isolated old man 
Because no one left just because of their angerness and bitter is driven, bitterness has driven everyone away. Even a, and it's just now so ubiquitous to be angry all the time, right? The, the language that, that Jesus says here, those who call someone a fool um, or who insults him, this idea, the, the, the Greek word there is moros, which is where we get our word moron from, right? You idiot, you moron. And yet, how many times if you're on social media, particularly like Twitter, do you see our own politicians, even those who would name the name of Jesus, calling people that, like scum, idiots, moron. I mean, it's just rife. I'm like, these are the people that are supposed to be leading us. It's bad for our mental health. It's bad for our physical health. It's bad for our relationships. And so Jesus says, listen, created Adam and Eve, and it was their kids. It only took one generation for murder to show up. Because Cain was angry with his brother. He was jealous. And he kills him. It's those seeds that are there of anger, of jealousy, of strife, contempt. Now, again, there are times where Jesus actually calls people a fool. And so it's not just any time you use that word. It's, it's what's in our heart, right? Because there are times where you can say, hey, listen, I think you're being a little ignorant in this. You're being foolish in this, right? Good parents will tell your kids, hey, you're being foolish. That's, that's not a smart way to think about things. But you can do that because you love the person. That's different than, you idiot, get out of my way in traffic, right? It's not, I'm not concerned about that person. Uh, it's not because I love them or care for them. It's because they're in my way, and I wish they were dead, <laughs> right? But this, and we kind of laugh, but this is what Jesus is driving at. It's this contempt that we have for other people, and it's the attitude of murdering them. I just wish you were gone. I wish you were out of my life which is why we kill people. They're an inconvenience. This, I want this person gone. I need them dealt with. I need them out of my life. And so Jesus is rightly uncovering not just where murder comes from, but the kind of people who we are. And eventually that can lead to murder, but he says You're no, we're no different. It's just that that person has taken who they are further than those of you who haven't technically killed someone. But it's the same heart, and it's not the heart of God. As we were reminded even after our prayer of confession, God is slow to anger. And his anger, is a, it's a righteous anger, right? So it's not a, I'm angry because you're inconveniencing me. Most of the time I get angry with my kids. It's not because they're acting in a sinful way. It's just they're annoying me. And so I lose my temper. I get mad, or I, whatever. That's a sinful anger. But Christians should be the hardest people to offend, right? We shouldn't be so easily offended. God is always bent toward reconciliation. And so we are called to pursue righteousness from pure hearts, turning away from outward physical acts of sin, whether it be sins of commission that we commit or omission, things that we should do that we don't. But the issue of the heart or the inner person is always present every time. 
right? We see this in kids, right? You're, my, you know, kids are fighting, and then you're like, break it up, and you're like, right, tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. You're like, you're not really sorry, I don't think. I don't, I mean, you said the word, but um, all the other things that you're communicating don't really communicate that you're sorry. You said the external thing, but it's pretty obvious that that's not actually what's going on, right? No, say like you mean it. Okay, I'm sorry. It's what's on the inside. This is what Jesus is driving at. Our second example that he gives us is, is one of lust. So the Torah explanation in 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then his uh, explanation in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. So again, he's not saying, you've heard it said that I committed not to commit adultery, but I say, hey, it's fine, go ahead. He's like, no, 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 committing adultery is wrong, but it's not just the physical act of having sex with someone. So, by the way, the biblical definition of adultery is sex with anyone who isn't your spouse. Okay, it's not just like two married people cheating on their spouse. So, any, sex with anyone who isn't your spouse that you're not married to. And a, a biblical definition of marriage has to be said as a man and a wife. A uh, man and a woman, opposite sex. Right? So, he says, it's not just this technicality of having sex with someone who isn't your spouse. It's lustful intent of the heart. Now, with all of the like penalties of adultery, of actual, like the actual physical act of adultery um, that would have been there, all the social stigmatism, all of that, I don't, I don't think in the Jewish community that Jesus is talking to you that adultery was probably like rampant. You get killed for that. <laughs> Right? Remember the woman caught in adultery and they're like, let's, let's stone her. So you, I don't think the actual uh, act of, uh, physical act of adultery was probably that rampant. But that's Jesus' point. Is you think you're living this sexually pure life when it's not. Your hearts are impure. It's the lustful intent on the inside in our minds. It's the fantasy that we have of those other people. Inward purity is just as important as outward. So Jesus will say it's out of the heart that we speak. It's what's revealed. It's not what goes on the inside, but what comes from the outside that makes us impure. So Jesus commands us not just to throw out the fruit of adultery, but the seeds of it too. Not just the fruit of murder, but the seeds of murder as well. And again, this is clear in the law all throughout the Old Testament. Right? It's not just don't commit adultery, but it's don't covet. This idea of looking at something that isn't mine and wanting it when it belongs to somebody else. Don't covet another man's wife, another woman's husband. Now, it's important that we need to say, listen, at this point, well, is Jesus saying then that all sin is just kind of equal? And in one sense, yes, it's equal in that it's all sin, that it all disqualifies us from the kingdom of heaven. But on the other hand, no, it's not equal in consequences or the damage that it may do, right? So um, physical abuse and murder is worse than slander. It, It has 
more damage and gone. You know, you rarely go to jail for slander. But Jesus says, no, the, the heart of what's going on in the inside as far as our standing before God is the same. So all of this sin, our anger, our lust, Jesus reveals that all of it is serious. And it, it, it uh, continues to reveal our need for grace. Um, so again, just to, to help us understand what Jesus is driving at, that our righteousness has to exceed that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were experts in the law, um, so we'll not see these categories like laid out for us in the Bible, but I think they're useful categories that um, the reformers and theologians have thought about for a, for a long time. So there's, they talk about kind of three uses of the law um, that will be helpful for us. So the first one, think of as a stop sign. Um, so this is kind of our, our civic use of the law. It's, it's just the way that evil gets restrained in the world. Um, and so even the most hardened criminal will stop at a stop sign. Because they know that if they just blow through a stop sign, they themselves could get killed and, and, and hurt, right? So we have laws that basically just restrain evil. Don't kill, you know, speed limit signs so that people don't get injured and maimed and, you know, kind of health and safety sorts of things. So that's one use of the law. Think of it like a stop sign. And the second use of the law is then is like a mirror. It shows us, it reveals to us what God is like and then what we are like. So it reveals to us our need for grace, mercy, forgiveness. We look at the law, we're like, especially the way that Jesus is unpacking it now, we're like, well, who could ever live up to that? Who would ever keep this law perfectly? And, and that's the point. It reveals our need for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness um, within that. But then there's a third use of the law, and we think of that as like a map. Um, so for those of us that now have a new heart, a regenerate heart, we have the Holy Spirit of God residing in us. Jesus is saying, hey, there's a use of the law that can actually be beneficial to us. Now that we have the Holy Spirit empowering us, we can obey the law of Christ. It shows us where to go like a map does. It, it's a guide. It, how, how, which, how do I follow Jesus? What does it actually look like? What path should I actually take? It's the law then that is able to help us in this. And not, again, the civic law. We're talking about God's moral law. Over all people for all time. Um, this is how the 1689 Baptist London Confession puts it, and I think it's helpful. So um, the, it's 1600 language, so I'll do my best here as we go. But it says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to, their, to be therefore justified or condemned. So we don't follow the law to be justified before God. We're not under law of works. Yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs them um, to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, their hearts, their lives, so as examining themselves by it. They may come to further conviction um, and humiliation and hatred against sin. So the, the law does that, right? This, it reveals like, oh, wait. Just because I don't murder people doesn't mean that I'm a nice person. I have all this contempt and bitterness and hatred, and I kind of wish people were just out of my life as an inconvenience. It reveals to us that I'm actually not any better at the, at the root of it than the man who's in prison. 
It's only by God's grace I haven't acted on that yet. He says, uh, he goes on then, um, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience, it is likewise of use to the saved person, regenerate, to restrain their corruptions and that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it severe to show that, it, uh, that even their sin deserves and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. So it guides us and directs us in a life of holiness. So this is what Jesus is driving at. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it and then show you how it actually can be a guide to walk the way of Jesus. The law of Christ. The law of love. So walking the way of Jesus, following that map, leads to a life of flourishing. It leads to being a happy, blessed person. It's a life where our inner person is being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just outward behavior modification, but inward heart transformation. Those are the ones that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones whose righteousness is exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because it's not my righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness that I'm relying on. It's his righteousness that exceeds those things. And as I follow him through the power of the Spirit, with a new heart, he leads me on the path of righteousness. So as we close, though, I want us to look at, look at the urgency. Look at the priority. Look at the extreme nature of what Jesus is driving at. Because you and I, our sinful nature, our our natural proclivity is to kind of downplay the sinful part of our lives. So, but what does he say? Everyone who looks at a woman, or if you're a woman, a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members. When he talks about members, that's parts of the body, right? Because he talks about us being members of one body in Ephesians. So members are body parts. Um, It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It's the urgency. It's the priority. Take care of this in radical ways before a time of judgment. Take care of, reconcile with your brother before you get to court or you're gonna be thrown into prison and not be let out. And so we need to take radical action. Again, this isn't literally go cut your eye out. So please don't come back here with a patch next week being, hey, I really took that to heart, right? Um, don't actually cut your hand off. But it might require radical action because we look at that and we're like, whoa, that's pretty extreme. But there's things that you would do now that others might think would be extreme. Why do you have a dumb phone? Like who has that little Nokia flip phone thing anymore? Like why don't you have a smartphone like everybody else? Um, because it's a porn machine <laughs> if you want it to be at any time. And so some of, you, some of us might need to go, you know what? It's just too much. I need to pluck my eye out. 
And there might be other reasons to, to you know, do that as well. You might need to cut out some relationships. You might need to end some relationships. We think we can kind of flirt with these things. That they're not as big a deal as we think they are. And Jesus is like, they're a big deal. And we need to radically act to avoid stumbling, to, be, um, to, to fall into these patterns of sin. But our sinful nature is to downplay that, right? Well, it's not like I killed someone. And Jesus says, yes, it is like you killed someone. Well, it's not like I slept with her for real. No, it is like you've slept with her for real. That's the point Jesus is driving at. But because we think, well, technically the consequences aren't as bad, I'm not getting anybody pregnant, I'm not getting an STD, and Jesus is like, okay, well, yeah, the technical parts of that might not be as bad, but the judgment part is the same. And so often we just think short-sighted, temporary. We don't actually think, what does this do in my relationship with God? What does this actually do in my relationship with Jesus? How is this actually... If my heart isn't any different than anybody else's, and I just go through all the external kind of what it means to be a Christian, all the good living bit, but my heart is just as wicked as anybody else, and it doesn't really bother me as long as my sin is secret kind of sin, Jesus is like, you're going to face the same judgment. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, again, don't mishear me and say that we can't struggle with secret sin, but this is the point. Bring it into the light. Allow the, the sanctification of Jesus to actually take its place. Again, the seriousness we see this in the church. This is um, 1 Corinthians 5. Um, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven, a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump? And this is another picture, right? A little bit of sin, just a little bit, gets in there. You can't even see yeast hardly. And yet it affects the whole, the whole thing. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not with the old law of malice and evil, but with the unlevel bread of sincerity and truth. Listen, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedier swindlers or idolaters since then you will need to go out of the world. So he says, I'm not talking about your unsaved friends. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any friends. (laughs) But what is he talking about? But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such as one? For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside, but purge the evil person from among you. The purity of the church was so important. He's like, if someone names the name of Jesus and is considered a brother or a sister in Christ, but is living a life of sexual immorality openly and unrepentant, not the person that's struggling and confessing and trying to walk, but just the person that's living an immoral immoral life. He's like, those people 
have to be removed and they need to be treated as outsiders because they're not actually brothers. That's how serious that is. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, pluck it out, what is earthly in you. And here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So righteous anger is coming. Judgment is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all of them. And he continues his list of which was sexual immorality, right? But here's the other list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. It's the same list that Jesus is working through, is he not? Your anger is an issue. Your bitterness, your malice toward other people. You're just kind of essentially wishing they were dead and out of your life. He says that needs to be put away. Your sexual morality, your impurity, your evil passions need to be put away. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, the opposite of angry ones, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving them, getting up in the middle of church, go find them, be reconciled, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I think you can flip that. To let the rules of Christ also leads us to peace, to flourishing, to shalom, to blessedness, to indeed which you were called in one body and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, encouraging one another in wisdom, and psalms and hymns, spiritual thongs, songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness, sorry, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We walk the way of Jesus because he gives us the ability to do that. He gives us the new desires. We can live for him because he's died for us. And through his death and resurrection, gives us a new life, a new heart, new desires. And Jesus is saying our inward life should reflect that. We shouldn't be people of anger and malice and sexual immorality. We'll go on to see some other applications as we go through. It's been challenging um, this week to have to go And there are times where my anger is really just an expression of my selfishness. It's just because I I have my own kind of personal quiet space and my kids are kind of invading that and I just kind of essentially wish they were kind of gone out of the picture. Now, you never as a parent go, I want to kill my kid. Well, I mean, we say that, but not like, hopefully we don't really mean that, right? But Jesus is saying it's that... That's who we are as people. And that's the part that needs to be continually brought to Jesus and confessed that we would take on his righteousness, his kindness, his patience, that we would forgive one another because he has forgiven us. 
It's applying the gospel to our own hearts and lives. The gospel isn't just how we become Christians. It's how we continue to live as Christians, constantly coming back to what Jesus has done for us and the implications of that then and how we actually live our lives in light of that with other people. Let's pray as we, um, as we come to the table, as we remember the gospel in this form of a meal, of his body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. Father, forgive us when we um, just take lightly our sin, where we make excuses for it, where we look to the culture to justify these things. Father, may we see that um, we, we could do this in very religious ways. We can be very religious people like the Pharisees were. Put on our Sunday best, go through the Sunday routine, be seen by others to be kind of good people, while our hearts and our inner life and who we are behind closed doors don't reflect any of that. Father, we know that that life of disintegration um, really does weigh heavily on us. The guilt, uh, the shame, um, and it manifests itself in, in physical illness and ailments and, and stress. And Father, maybe even that is part of the judgment that we receive in this for being disintegrated people. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit this morning um, would do what only you can do. I can't see into the hearts of anyone else in this room. I, I have no idea. It's only by what we see on the outside that we can start to have some clues and ideas. And so, Father, I just pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. And Father, I pray that in that moment right now, in those things that, that you're bringing to our mind, right now in this moment, that it wouldn't be the voice of Satan that we hear, the voice of condemnation and guilt and shame, but it would be the voice of Jesus, one offering us grace and mercy and forgiveness and life. That you are God that is slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion. You have demonstrated that most clearly on the cross. And so, Father, as we come and we receive bread, as we receive wine, as we have this pronouncement that we uh, have pronounced over us week after week, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And Father, it's because we are a room full of murderers and adulterers that we come again pleading the blood of Christ in confidence, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we have been given grace, knowing that our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh, that we can leave all of the guilt and the shame and the heaviness of that. We can enjoy this meal and walk away the confidence of knowing that all of, the, all of our murderous heart, all of our adulterous hearts, all of that has been cleansed and when the Father looks at us, he just sees the righteousness of Jesus, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees.
and he welcomes us in. Welcomes us into his kingdom. Welcomes us into a life of flourishing and joy, peace, and wholeness. And Father, may we believe that this morning. May you drive it deep into our heart. May we remember that tomorrow when these murderous uh, thoughts, when, when our lustful heart rises up. May we remember it then. And maybe it be your goodness, your, the beauty of Jesus and what he has done that expands our desire for you and lessens our desire for these things and never give us what they promise to give us. These things that always leave us unfulfilled. Never leave us as integrated people, but always disintegrate us more. May we remember it then. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today that this is their first time really understanding the gospel, the good news in that way, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they confess um, who they are as, sin- as a sinner, as we all are, um, that we wouldn't be hypocrites, that we would be honest about who we are in light of you, that we would receive your forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. May today be that day that they taste your goodness and grace. May see your beauty for the very first time in vivid colors. May today be the day um, that all of us um, see you more clearly and love you more deeply. Work that in our hearts, Holy Spirit, today. We ask you, amen.